You didn't mention Donna, did you? You didn't mention Donna. Yeah. blood pressure was spiked while she was here and she was having a lot of trouble so some of our nurses here took Donna up and so keep praying for her would you turn me way up here now would you thank you Um, Hebrews chapter 13 important message this morning that fits with almost everything that's happened so far. So let me read from verse 11. I'm kind of cutting into a section there, but let me read with verse 11 down through verse 16. You follow along. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. We'll think more about that phrase in a few moments. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now the idea in verse 12 of making people holy or sanctifying people is not principally related to morals. It's related to worship. A person who was sanctified was qualified for acceptable worship. That's the phrase of Paul Ellingsworth, the scholar. We think, isn't everyone acceptable for worship? I mean, don't we sing, come, now is the time to worship, just as you are? Doesn't Christianity have a worship rights act, kind of like the U.S. government's voters' rights act? Aren't all worshipers equal? The answer to that is absolutely not. Worship is not egalitarian, and worshipers are not equal. As a person in America must be qualified in order to vote by citizenship, by registration, a person must be qualified to worship. The Old Testament is full of laws dictating when and where and under what circumstances a person is qualified to approach God. We read through those various laws in Leviticus till they make our heads spin. This person's not qualified to worship because he touched a dead body. This person's not qualified to worship because he's contracted some disease. This person is not qualified to worship because he touched something that someone who was disqualified from worship had just touched. And it goes on and on. Then there are the rules about having one's qualifications reinstated. And always there must be a cleansing. That is, the person must be sanctified or made holy. It's not just about moral character but about being in a state in which God will find one's worship acceptable all those rules reveal a deeper truth from another dimension sin disqualifies a person from worship and since we've all sinned we've all been disqualified now maybe you don't like going to worship services and you were dragged along today by a parent or a spouse, and you say, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if I never had to attend another worship service in my life. 
wouldn't make any difference to me. But you would be very wrong. In a real sense, all of life is preparation for you to become a true worshiper. The kind that Jesus said the Father is looking for. Heaven is the place where true worshipers go. Like swallows go to Capistrano, like monarch butterflies go to the Oyamel fir forest in Mexico, worshipers go to heaven. It's not just that they don't want to go to hell. It's not even that they do want to go to heaven. It's that heaven is their place. It calls the true worshiper. And he or she will go. How important it is to be a worshiper. A person's not qualified to worship God in the grime of his sins. He is qualified or sanctified. That word that we saw in verse 12. For worship by the blood of Christ. That is, by participating in the sacrifice that he offered for sin. The benefits of that sacrifice are extended to all, but they're only effective for those who believe in him. When we put our faith in him, his sacrifice covers us. Now look at verse 13. In this letter that our author is later going to describe as a letter of exhortation, this may be the chief exhortation, the key with which we unlock the intent of the letter. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace. The word could also be translated the insult or the reproach that he bore. The Hebrew Christians, like everyone else, including us, wanted to avoid disgrace and insult and reproach. But you can't follow Christ without finding yourself at odds with society's norms and values. And that will attract insult and reproach. Our author knew that if his readers allowed the fear of disgrace to control them, they'd never make it. So he puts it to them straight. Bear the disgrace. As Jesus carried the cross, you carry the reproach. Don't try to hide. Take your place as his follower. The great preacher Hatton Robinson once helped lead a tour in Turkey of the churches that are mentioned in the Revelation. And on the last night that they were there, they were in the city of Izmir and were having dinner at one of the nicer hotels with their tour guide who had once lived in the United States and spoke English flawlessly. As they were eating, the tour guide began to ask questions about the faith. And Robinson said to him, you're a follower of Islam. If you died tonight, would you be sure you could stand in the presence of Allah? He thought for a moment and said, no. There are five things that Muslims should do. I've done two out of five. So Han Robinson and his guide began to talk, and they talked long into the night about the gospel. And before he left, Robinson said to him, look, you're serious about this conversation, I know. And it wouldn't be faithful of me not to ask you if right now you'd like to put your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. And this is what his tour guide answered. He said, you don't know what you're asking me. Do you know what would happen if I did that? If I announced to anybody 
my wife would leave me. My family would disown me. My boss would fire me. I may want to go back to the United States and the government wouldn't give me an exit visa. I'd give up everything. You go back home tomorrow. And I would starve to death in my own culture. As far as Robinson knows, that man has not trusted Christ. But many people, we heard about some of them last week as part of our IDOP, the International Day of Prayer. Many have made that decision and they have lost everything because they follow Christ. They bear the disgrace. Well, even in our own country, Christ's followers must be prepared to endure shame, insult, reproach in the here and now. But the here and now will not be here forever. This is not home. Not yet. Look at verse 14. A literal, if somewhat wooden translation of the original language might go like this. For we do not have an enduring city here, but we seek after the one about to be. The word I translated as seek after, the NIV renders as looking for, was used in legal documents of the period to refer to an official search for someone. It was also used to describe a debt collector's pursuit of a person who was late in making payments. So 2,000 years ago, there were debt collectors then too. In the New Testament, it's used to describe the manhunt that King Herod initiated after St. Peter escaped from prison. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, this is the word that's used when Jesus says that the pagans run after food and clothing. It describes a resolute, determined search for something. Here, we do not have an enduring city. But we're looking for one. We are on an all-out manhunt for a place that fits us. A place we can call our own. We spend our entire lives searching for it. Some people just know the place that will fit them is a house with a white picket fence. While others are sure it's a boardroom in a Fortune 500 company. But when they finally get the picket fence and the three kids that go with it or the boardroom and the Armani suits... The search starts all over again. That's because we won't find our special place, the enduring city, here and now. And so the search goes on. We'll never find that special place that fits us by looking out there. We find it by being transformed in here. The place of this search is the landscape of the soul, not the culture-scape of contemporary society. Now, I'm not talking about becoming introspective. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about being made holy, being sanctified, as St. Paul puts it, through and through. We conduct the search for this city when we seek God's rule over us and his character within us, or as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We'll take possession of the enduring city, the place we finally fit, the place that fits us the way a glove fits a hand, when the king has taken possession of our whole spirit, soul, and body. Every interaction in our world, with family, friends, enemies, with school, work, church, with success, 
failure, triumph, tragedy, every interaction provides an opportunity to bring the landscape of our souls under submission to the king. That's not a goal that people in the world, and frankly many people in the church, share or even respect. And so those who seek it, who seek the enduring city, will sometimes become the object of reproach. So be it. Even that offers us the opportunity to bring the hidden regions of our lives under the submission of the king of the enduring city. Now I mentioned that in our author's mind, being made holy is not so much about reforming moral behavior, though it will do so, as it is about being qualified to offer acceptable worship. Keep that in mind. It's very important. Now that idea is part of the biblical worldview, but it's foreign to most of us. For our author, it was a lens through which he perceived all of life. He understood something we failed to grasp, that humans were designed from the outset to be worshipers and can only be fulfilled if they worship. That's the reason we so easily fall into the worship of sports heroes and writers and movie stars. But that kind of worship will never satisfy us. See, God didn't say you'll have no other gods besides me because that would hurt his feelings. He said it because the worship of lesser gods hurts the worshiper. Only the worship of the true God will ever fulfill us. We need to worship. Our author understood that God crafted the world to be a temple where humanity could meet, love, and worship him and where he could meet us, love us, and give himself to us. Adam was the first high priest ministering to God by being his servant. As the later priesthood was responsible to care for the temple building, Adam was to take care of the earth and ensure it remained a place that God could inhabit. Earth was built to be a temple where God's creatures encountered him. But humanity rebelled and God's presence was withdrawn. So God chose a man, Abraham, and appointed his descendants to be a kingdom of priests to serve him in the wider world. Eventually, one of those descendants, King Solomon, built a stone temple and staffed it with Levitical priests as a place where worshipers could meet God. For those priests in Solomon's temple to do their work, to approach a holy God and offer acceptable worship, they had to prepare themselves with a series of ritual cleansing and clothing changes. But their cleansing was physical, not spiritual. And God's presence could not be fully restored to them. That's why in the temple, they remained separate from the holy place, the place of the presence, which was divided from them by a curtain. God was planning something better through Jesus. His intention, now hear this, was to make us a new order of priests and to give us a cleansing that's more than skin deep. In order to commune with God as he always intended, to be fully restored to his presence, we need to be spiritually cleansed. Not with water, but with his Holy Spirit. Our hearts need to be washed, not our bodies. Our minds need to be changed, not our clothes. 
We need to be made holy. Now you don't need to be made holy to worship a movie star. But you do need to be made holy to worship Almighty God. And we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's Hebrews chapter 10. Trust in him qualifies us to worship God. And so we always worship God through Jesus Christ. Our first parents turned earth into a temple of self-worship. And we followed their example. Sin has defiled and increasingly defaced the earth. And God has removed his presence. But the Bible tells a long story of how God set about to rebuild that temple. And to restore to us his presence. So in the words of the all-important new covenant. To which our author devoted most of chapter 8. God promises, I will be their God. And they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. The fulfillment of that promise is described beautifully in the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, dressed like a bride, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, as it was always intended, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they will be, he will be their God. A new heaven and earth inextricably linked. God's presence restored. His people, joyful worshipers. That's what the enduring city promises. But we don't wait for that city to materialize before we commence our worship because we have already been made holy by the blood of Christ, verse 12, and are qualified to offer acceptable worship now, at least in a preliminary way. Now, there's a dynamic at work in worship that is phenomenally important for us to understand. True worship changes the worshiper into the likeness of the object of his or her worship. The movie star worshiper begins to wear her hair like the actress, the rock star worshiper dresses like the musician. The worshiper of the basketball superstar practices his moves over and over on the court. To the degree possible to them, humans become like the object they worship. That's why the psalmist says of those who make and worship idols, those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. It's a spiritual law. We take on the attributes of the thing we worship. Therein lies our potential for glory or for shame, for endless life or unending destruction. That's why it's so crucial that our worship is directed to God alone through Jesus Christ. According to verse 15, we can even now worship God acceptably by offering him a sacrifice of praise. 
Now a sacrifice costs something. And there are times that praise is especially costly. Those times when we bear disgrace and insult because we belong to God. When we praise, that's a sacrifice of praise. When we're hurting and sad and things are not to our eyes turning out the way we think they should. When we endure hardship because we live in this broken world. It's at those times that praise becomes a priceless sacrifice. One with which God is well pleased. When the angels in heaven see the sacrifice of praise offered by you in those kinds of circumstances, they burn with holy joy. And the worship of heaven and earth are mysteriously joined in a foretaste of the age to come. Now praise is not the only sacrifice that we have the opportunity to offer. Look at verse 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased, is pleased. Uh, Doing good is really a noun in Greek. And it could be translated do-gooding. And sharing with others is another noun. It's often, it's the word koinonia, often translated as fellowship. Our author says that doing good and sharing are sacrifices. The kind that St. Peter refers to as spiritual sacrifices. So doing good is a sacrifice? Yes, it's one that pleases God. A literal translation of the Greek word here would be well-pleased. God is well-pleased. He loves it when his people do good for others without expecting anything in return. The others may be family, friends, neighbors, church members, co-workers, strangers, even enemies. It doesn't matter. When God sees his people doing good, he accepts it as a sacrifice offered to him. If you serve as a dinner host in our ministry to the homeless, Family Promise, God will receive that as a sacrifice. You bring food to feed the hungry. God will accept it as an offering. No act that is done for the sake of another is too small. Make your wife coffee in the morning as an act of love and God will receive it as an act of worship. Bend over to pick up an item that someone left in the floor at the grocery store. God will accept it as a sacrifice. Now don't do it to be seen and commended. Do it because you're conscious of God. Do it because it's good to do. Do it as an act of kindness or of love and God will take it as an act of worship. And you, and here's that remarkable dynamic at work, will gradually become more and more like the one you worship. Do-gooding can be an act of worship. And so can sharing. The Greek word here is frequently used in a technical sense of giving money to support God's work. And is sometimes translated as partnership. When we take the offering on Sunday mornings and you share your money, little or much, it can be an act of worship, a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. It makes him happy. As long as it's not given to show off, but given to help, He'll regard it as a sacrifice given to him. But look, God doesn't call us to worship for one hour on Sunday mornings. He calls us to a life of worship. That one hour of worship is not enough to transform you. He calls us to a life of worship. We can move through life in the holy atmosphere of worship. Praising God at the drop of a pen. 
I look around the room, I can think of all kinds of different words that describe us. You know, we have teachers, students, and engineers, and factory workers, and pastors, and laymen, and Ohio State fans, and the other guys. We've got them all. But none of those words go to the heart of a Christian's identity, like the word worshiper. But if you lead a worshiping life, you will find yourself out of step with the rest of the world, which lives a worship me life. You must get over the fear of what others think of you. If your life is moving to Jesus, you will sometimes endure insults and reproach. In our country, it's usually the kind that people say behind your back. But you will. You need to make up your mind. Decide now that you will let no one and no thing stop you from being his person. And that means you're going to have to get over worrying about what others think of you. In closing, let me share with you an open letter Jesse Rice wrote to that kind of worry. He's writing on Donald Miller's blog page, and here's what he said. Dear fear of what others think. He's writing this letter to fear of what others think. Dear fear of what others think. I'm sick of you. It's time we broke up. I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times, but seriously, fear of what others think, this is it. We're breaking up. I'm tired of overthinking my status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more clever, funny, and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people I don't know that well, all in the hopes that they'll like me, accept me, praise me, I run around all day feeling like a golden retriever. Like me, like me, like me. Because of you, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head and I never stop acting. I can never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience, the one that lives only in my head but whose collective voice is louder than any other voice in the universe. And all of this is especially evil because if I really stop and think about it and let things go quiet, and listen patiently for the voice of the God who made me and the Savior who died for me. In his eyes, it turns out, I'm actually profoundly precious, lovable, worthy, valuable. When I find my true identity in Christ, then you, fear of what others think, turn back into the tiny, yapping little dog that you are. So you and I are done. And no, I'm not interested in talking it through. I'm running, jumping, laughing you out of my life once for all. Or at least that's what I really, really want. God help me. And God help us to live that worshipful life no matter what anybody else thinks. Let's pray. God, make us those worshipers that you look for. Who don't just sing and raise our hands on Sundays, but who live lives that occupy that realm of worship. And all of this because of your son, Jesus, who makes us holy through his blood. Thank you for him. Amen.